0: very exciting for me to be at Wodonga Baptist. No, it really is. I feel like I've got some heritage here and a lot of common ground. I mean, Graham and Maria Smith, very big, formative people in my upbringing. Um, when, when Graham was pastor at Blackburn North Baptist Church, as it was, as it was known back then, I was the, the snotty-nosed little kid that was running around and trying to date his daughter and all sorts of stuff. I said date. That's very American, isn't it? Gosh. Um, and, uh, you know, I had lunch with, uh, with Jonathan and Sandy and Mason last, uh, two weeks ago now, which is a great time. And uh, I tell you what, what I'm going to try and speak to you about this morning, guys, if, I, my, vo- if my voice makes it, um, I can tell these guys are onto it. They get what I'm trying to talk about, and I'm sure many of you do too. But in a sense, what I'm going to try and talk to you about cannot be got. It cannot be completely understood. It's something that no matter where we're at, there's more. Isn't that one of the most beautiful things about God? I think maybe the most beautiful thing about God, there is always more. No matter how much of his love for me I understand, there is always more. Always more. In fact, uh, Jonathan uh, reminded me that he auditioned for a band I was in. Would it be, I don't want to say it, 20 years ago? (laughs) You haven't changed a bit, man. You You look like you're 20 still. Give or take, you know. <laughs> but gee, gave it a good shot, let me tell you. <laughs> let me just tell you one thing, people. No matter what I say from now on in this message, I do feel like I'm among friends who want to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm going to try and speak to us about some challenging stuff to do with what it is to worship God. But please don't hear me as saying, you don't get this, so I'm telling you. You know, I'm very passionate about what I'm speaking about, and sometimes I'm told I get so passionate, it can even seem like I'm angry. I'm not angry, I'm just passionate. I love you guys very, very much. You know, I used to be in this band called Sonic Flood, uh, and I was there for the, in, for the band, uh, in the band for about three and a half years. And uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, Sonic Flood, huge awards, hit singles, gold records, massive crowds, all strangely before I joined. <laughs> hmm. I was playing bass guitar in that band and I loved it a lot. And Sonic Flood is known as being a worship band, singing worship songs, giving people a worship experience. The CDs are called worship CDs. And... Um, you know, I learned a lot about, about all this whole realm because, you know, Sonic Flood is known as being one of the uh, forefathers of the modern worship phenomenon, the modern worship revival. And uh, the band has a song called I Could Sing of Your Love Forever. It's one of the biggest hits Sonic Flood ever had. I Could Sing of Your Love Forever. Do you know that one? Well, we would play that song whenever we performed, every time. And we'd usually have it towards the end of our concert. And we would turn it into an audience participation number as well. Which means you make the band soft for one of the choruses later in the song. And you really encourage people to sing. And it was always a really special moment. You know, I'd stop playing my bass guitar. Which, by the way, is the coolest of all instruments. Isn't it, Dan? Yep. Yep. So I'd stop playing the coolest instrument, which gives us the coolest notes. And I would sing as well. Off my microphone, I could sing If You Love Forever, the title of the song over and over again. A beautiful moment. It would give me chills. I would see hundreds, sometimes thousands and thousands of people singing the title of this song. Hands raised, people weeping, closing their eyes. Beautiful moment. And I'm not trying to detract from that moment at all. But I tell you what, while that was happening one night, a thought hit me like a truck in the brain. And my life hasn't been the same since. And the thought, I believe, was from God. And the thought took the shape of words. I didn't hear an audible voice, but these are the words that this thought had. I can tell you the exact words. I did not ask you to sing about my love, but instead I asked you to be my love. And there I was for the thousandth time leading people to sing, I could sing of your love forever. I could sing of your love forever. There'll be plenty of time for singing about God's love. But it's true to say that nowhere in the recorded words of Jesus does he ask us to get together and sing songs about his love. But over and over again, in many different ways, he asks us to be his love to one another, to our neighbors, to our enemies, and to the least of these, to the ends of the earth. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm a musician. I love music, and I hope I've demonstrated to you that I want to sing about God's love. I think it's a good thing to do, to sing these songs that express our worship. I think we should do it. I think we should do it more, more often, for longer, more passionately. I want to encourage people to do that, but we need perspective. We need perspective. I'm going to try and tell you a story that I really don't want to tell you because it's pretty embarrassing. But it involves my rock star sunglasses. Do you want to see my rock star sunglasses? All right, and I kind of need both hands for this, so Chris, I'm going to go onto here. All right, the rock star sunglasses, here they come. Are you ready for this? Now this story involves these rock star sunglasses and it's while I was with the band Sonic Flood and the band had um, driven in a tour bus over the border of the United States into Canada to do some concerts and I couldn't be with them on the bus so I flew up later and I landed in Toronto Airport and uh, I stepped out into the uh, beautiful sunshine of Toronto strange I know for Canada but it was beautiful sunshine and I slipped on my rock star sunglasses here they are. What do you think? These are my rockstar sunglasses. I was going to be picked up by a young guy who I'd never met before in his own car. There was no way I was going to recognise him, but he certainly knew who I was. (laughs) Sure enough, this young guy waved me over. You're the guy from Sonic Flood. Yes, I am. Have you seen my rockstar sunglasses? (laughs) So we loaded up my beautiful bass guitar. And uh, we went for this drive. It was quite a long drive, a couple of hours. And we decided to stop for lunch. And I was sitting beside him chatting and we parked the car and we went into a restaurant and right then I decided to myself, right now would be the appropriate time to take off your rock star sunglasses. So I did. And right at that moment I realised that my glasses were not the way I expected they were. They were actually like this. I looked like a complete idiot. The worst thing? This is a true story. <laughs> so I did what you'd expect. I went, oh my goodness, there's a lens falling out of my glasses, and I looked on the carpet. Not there. And this Canadian guy, sweet fella, he says to me, um, sorry to tell you this, but you were like that at the curbside of Toronto Airport. <laughs> I had an argument with him at that point. I said, no, there's no way that's true. You can't be right about that because this is really dark and there's nothing here. I would tell. There's no way. He said, I've got no reason to lie to you. And I said, why didn't you say something to me? Look at me. Why didn't you say something? And he said, well, I don't know. I thought maybe you had an eye condition. Or perhaps you were starting some sort of new rock star trend that I didn't know about. Golly, in the end I had to concede that he was right. The lens was in the, in the case. It had been there all along. And I think God let that happen to me for two reasons, two main reasons. One. <laughs> One, because I needed some humility. But two, so I'd say this to you guys. Sometimes things are wrong. Sometimes things are very wrong. And we don't realise it. You know, the thing that's wrong is not there in front of us to be seen. The thing that's wrong is what we're looking through. We can't see it. We're distracted by other things. We're distracted by what's going on. We're used to what's wrong. Sometimes things are wrong. And we don't know it. And I'm going to try and talk to you about something that I believe is wrong. And for the most part, we don't know it. And there's going to be places in this message where you're going to feel like, yeah, that's good, but it's not about me. It's about somebody else. Or it's about people in general, and I'm just part of that. Would you try with all you can to ignore that? Try and, try and realize that this message is for me. It's for me as much as it's for you. I believe that your pastoral team get this, but it's for them as well. They get it in a sense and they don't get it it's not to be got there is always more there is always more you see when i was describing sonic flood to you before i used the word worship an awful lot and as i travel around our beautiful nation to different churches but also to new zealand to to america to canada i hear the word worship usually used like that worship band worship song worship leader worship experience worship service as I look in the Bible, the word worship is never, ever used as an adjective. It's not a describing word. So we're using an adjective to define, to categorize, to control something else. But worship cannot be contained in an adjective. I believe the word worship is most powerful and potent when it is used as a verb, a doing word. It involves action, movement, engagement. Worship is not a type of band. Worship is not a type of song. And I believe this profoundly. The words we speak, the way we speak, changes the way we think. And the way we think changes the way we live. If I'm using the word worship, such a sacred, all-encompassing concept and use it to mean a type of music or a type of experience I get or a meeting of Christians, I believe it's an indicator of something much more seriously wrong. I believe it's an indicator that we are losing sight of what worship truly is in our modern culture. You see, if we allow the word worship to change in its meaning and its usage, to mean what it doesn't mean, leaving us with no word to describe what it truly does mean, We will not be able to talk about it. We will not be able to think about it. We will not be able to live it. Many words change in our English language over time. I mean, when I say the word spam, no one's thinking about a cold can meat anymore, are we? We say web, we're probably not talking about a spider's home, we're talking about the internet. But many words change. Like gay, like grass like evangelical, fundamentalist, liberal, conservative. These words are changing in their meaning. Contemporary. Well, we are allowing the word worship to change. And it will change the way we think. It will change the way we live. But this is not a lesson this morning about word usage. Not at all. The word usage is an indicator of something more seriously wrong, I believe. And to get to that, I need to speak to you a little bit about a bit of a hero of mine. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I even love saying his name, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Fantastic name, but a fantastic guy. An inspiration. He's a gentleman who was a a Lutheran theologian, author, and much more. But he lived during uh, the rule rule of the Nazi party in Germany. And... uh, This is a time in Germany when most of the church was very passive about the rising evil in Germany at the time, at the hands of Hitler and his regime. A big chunk of the church openly supported the evil that was happening. And almost nobody had anything to say to defend the defenceless. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of those voices, one of those few. And he was imprisoned in a concentration camp as a result and executed with only a couple of weeks of World War II left to go. And in 1937, he said this, Cheap grace is the mortal enemy of our church. Our struggle today is for costly grace. And I believe what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in 1937 is completely true in 2008. 2008. But if this statement here is not making a whole lot of sense to you right now, we're going to get there. But maybe this slight retranslation for the purposes of this morning and what I'm talking about might help. I believe that cheap worship is the mortal enemy of our church. It's going to kill us. Our struggle today is for costly worship. When worship looks like a concert, When worship depends on whether I get the chill down my spine or whether the band is good enough before I pull my hands out of my pockets and sing a song, if it depends on these things, then we are gravitating to cheap grace, cheap worship, and ignoring, to a large degree, maybe for the most part, costly grace, costly worship. To try and explain those statements a little more, I want to speak to you about what is my favourite word, perhaps. One of the favourite, anyway. And it's the word paradox. See, if you can say paradox correctly in a sentence in a conversation, people think you're smart. And I encourage you, if you're a student, or if you write essays or anything like that, use the word paradox. You'll get better marks. I promise you. And it gives you a chance to say a five-syllable word, paradoxical. That's impressive. But we need to know what the word means, right? To use it, we need to know what it means. And to explain that, I want to show you a photograph of Morgan Freeman. And this is why. In 2007, I heard a radio show uh, on national radio in America that voted Morgan Freeman's voice as the most popular speaking voice in all of America. Not his singing voice. I've never heard him sing. But his speaking voice is the most popular. When he speaks, people listen. We see him here doing the voiceover for March of the Penguins movie as the narrator. He was paid millions of dollars to do that. He was also the voice of the Visa card commercials during the Olympic Games, even here in Australia, I believe. He was even the voice of God in a couple of movies. right? And this radio show explained that Morgan Freeman's voice is so popular, they believe, because it is simultaneously rough And smooth. Now that doesn't make sense does it? Things are either rough or they are smooth but paradoxically Morgan Freeman's voice is both rough and smooth and this radio show tells me that is why it's so popular and that got me thinking about Marilyn Monroe. Here's an actress, a person, who is just as popular today, perhaps more so than when she was alive. Why? Well, I believe it's this. Melanie Monroe somehow is able to portray sweet, naive, innocent girl next door at the same time as portraying sexy, seductress, danger woman. Paradox. And this is why I believe she's so popular. These two things that logically, if I use my brain to think about it, these two things can't exist at the same time in the same person, same place. No, they can't. But paradox tells me that it can, and that is why I'm appealed. That's why there's an appeal there for me. I believe actually each of us, whether we realise it or not, we've got an ache for paradox. You think about even band names. I'm seeing it everywhere now. Things like uh, band names like Led Zeppelin. Lead is heavy and zeppelin's a balloon, right? Guns and roses. I heard a song lyric recently and it was something like this. um, You're speaking so loud I can't hear a word you're saying. It's an interesting line, much more interesting than I don't understand you. If you're a poet or any sort of artist, a songwriter, a sculptor, a painter, if you can weave some paradox in your work, people will find it more appealing. They may not know why, but it will be. Paradox is a powerful tool. And it gets me thinking about stories like this, and this is hopefully my last story to explain what it means. If you imagine a bunch of bikers, a biker gang, they're having a fist fight outside a bar at 2am, right? Now imagine, if you will, a bunch of grandmothers getting together to bake some cakes, to sell them to raise money for an orphanage. Alright, there's two stories that aren't that interesting. But what if the biker gang... Bake the cake to sell them to raise money for an orphanage. What if a bunch of grandmothers at 2am were having a fist fight outside a bar? (laughs) Now those are interesting stories because of paradox. I want to send a camera crew around to the bar at 2am. Why are the grandmothers there? What's the problem? Why are they fighting? How does a grandmother punch? (laughs) Paradox. Well, when I was in the Paul Common Trio, we had a song called The Killing Tree. My favourite song. Killing, death, dark. Tree, life, light. It's an intriguing song title, isn't it? Killing Tree. It was many people's favourite song that we played for. Well, friends, The Killing Tree is about the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus I believe, is the greatest paradox of all. And the ache that we have in us, the ache that would have us even in a church building like this this morning, I think we're being drawn, drawn here by this paradox of the cross. This ache in me for paradox is only quenched by the cross. Because the message of the cross is die to live. And I believe what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in 1937. And what I'm trying to say to you in in 2008 about cheap grace, about cheap worship, is showing that we are mainly gravitating, aligning ourselves with the live of the cross. And we are ignoring, for the most part, the die of the cross. See, I want to reinforce to you, friends, that the cross's message, the cross itself, is a free gift the life death and resurrection of jesus is a free gift yes and if i said anything different i should be kicked out of here but paradoxically this free gift costs everything everything i'm struggling to understand this but i believe this struggle This swimming into the great paradoxical mystery of die to live is where God wants me to be. Moment by moment, discerning from his spirit what it means for me to die. Not just live. See, I hear people say things like, I know that Jesus died so that I could live. And that is true. But he lives to show you how to die. Paradoxically, both are true. I want to give you this little mathematical formula that I was discipled in. It's a formula that says formula that says Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And this is a reminder to me and hopefully also to you that everything in me, everything in my sinful human nature, tries to add stuff to Jesus and tries to subtract stuff from Jesus. Love your enemies got to be a misprint offer my life as a living sacrifice well that's too difficult i'll leave that bit out i will try to add stuff and subtract stuff and when i do that i'm not left with everything i feel like i'm i believe i'm left with an abomination i think i'm left with what we might call religion religion Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Let's turn to some scripture. James 1.26 tells us this. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. And I can see people trying to look this up in their Bible. Sorry, I didn't give you enough time. Go ahead and have a look. And I think you'll find that the verse you read is very similar to what I put up there. Using the words religious and religion, but less than a minute ago, I used the word religion in a negative context, didn't I? And we even heard some, hmm, Jesus plus stuff, minus stuff equals religion. Yes, religion, bad. But here we are with James 1.26. This is an unhelpful translation for me right now. See, religion is a word that's changed like spam. Like we're letting worship, the word change. Religion has gone, I'm sorry. It means negative things now. It means someone who does things regularly, the same way every time, religious, especially if they're doing those things to find their own acceptability to God. The word is even used now to mean someone who thinks of themselves as being morally superior. So I did something with James one twenty six that I consider to be really clever. I hope you're impressed. I went back to the Greek. It's very easy to do online now. And there's a word, threskos, if there's any Greek scholars here, I may not have this completely correct, but I do have the context correct, I believe. Threskos is a word that's been translated for us here as religious and religion. But threskos is better translated like this. Now this verse makes sense to me. If anyone considers himself a worshipper, and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his worship is worthless. I consider myself a worshipper. I know I thought this verse was about perhaps swearing or telling a lie or slandering someone, gossip perhaps, but no. Worship band, worship song, worship leader, worship experience. I think we're very loose with our use of the word worship. If worship is truly what we're going to discover it is in the very next verse and we use it to mean this type of Christian entertainment, something's gone badly wrong. But let's look at that very next verse. James one twenty seven says, Pure and perfect. Religion? No. Threskos. Pure and perfect worship. Here we go. Pure and perfect worship in the sight of God is to care for orphans and widows and to remain uncorrupted by the world. doesn't say anything about songs there. doesn't say anything about 10am on Sunday doesn't say anything about being inside a particular sort of building. It never will. And I believe that when James was, this book was written, orphans and widows were the group of people in the most need that were, that were prevalent, that were, were in the, the reader's faces. I think we could take that to mean anyone I know about who is needy, who is less fortunate than I am but the most powerful part of that verse is not the orphans and widows part it's the remain uncorrupted by the world that's the most powerful part well here's my confession to you and I don't make this confession lightly I believe I am corrupted how could I not be? I've been living in Australia or the United States all my life societies that tell me in an infinite number of ways through advertising And many, many other ways that life is really about me. It's about me making my way in the world. Sure, I should be a good person, but really, it's about me making sure I have all my comforts and conveniences met, that I'm entertained, that I have a nest egg, I have a plan, that I'm hopefully fashionable, that I'm popular, so on and so on and so on. And, and this way of life, this way of corrupted thinking would tell me and I can be a good person within that, care for someone who's needy as long as it comes from only my wants, not my needs. But I believe that I've lost sight of the difference between my wants and my needs. I am corrupted. I can't tell the difference anymore. I'm corrupted. I mean, 15 years ago, I didn't know what the internet was. Now, if I don't get some access every day, someone's going to hear about it. You know, we bought a house, my wife and I, in, in Nashville, 1962 house, and the closet was this wide in the master bedroom. In 1962, people felt like that was enough clothes for a married couple. What are we going to do? We better blow out the wall and invade the next bedroom for our walk in robe. I've lost sight of the difference. I want to be a worshipper, pure and perfect. But I'm realising that I'm corrupted. Let's move to, James, uh, to Romans 12.1. And I've done no word switcheroo on this verse at all. You'll be pleased to know. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's great mercy, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Paradox. Die to live. Living sacrifice. The free gift of the cross that costs everything. Holy and acceptable to God. And let that be your spiritual act of worship. Other translations of this verse say your reasonable act of worship. Your responsible act of worship. Your intelligent act of worship. Die to live. Let that be your worship. Holy, acceptable, spiritual. Now Jesus says a lot of tough things that I try to subtract. He says, through Paul there, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. He says, if I try to hold on to my life, I'm going to lose it. But give your life away. That's how you find it. He says, A kernel of wheat must fall to the ground and die. We think about the imagery of baptism. I looked around because I'm sure there's a baptismal here somewhere. Baptist church. It's got to be under the floor somewhere. Think about the image of that. This is die to live. This is what the baptism is reminding us of something that happens completely at one moment but is a continual journey in another way. And this in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would call themselves my disciple, and I think, or a worshipper, they must turn away from their selfishness, pick up a cross and follow me. Whose cross? My cross. The cross is a picture of what Jesus has done for me. Yes, but the cross is also a picture of how I must live, how I must die, how I must be a living sacrifice, how I must die to live. But as as I take on a stock of my life, I realize I am a selfish person. I'm still making sure that I'm okay first before I care for anybody else, me and those closest to me. Got a message. (laughs) I don't make this this confession lightly. I am selfish. As I look across all the decisions I make, most of them are for me. And I believe that my ability to be a worshipper is the polar opposite of me being selfish. While one thrives, the other dies. If I want one to live, I must starve the other. If I am going to align my life, lay my life down completely at the foot of the cross, I must embrace both sides of the paradox. I must. I cannot just embrace mainly one or the other. It's all or nothing with the cross. We cannot play games that allow us to enjoy the live and only as much as the die as we can handle. Only enough so I don't feel guilty. Die to live. Hopefully, in our case, not a physical death. But for many throughout our history, and I've got a feeling that Jonathan's going to speak about this next week. For many around the world, right, Jonathan, it is a physical death we're talking about. Thankfully, in Australia, probably not for us. But I think it means everything between deciding to like, like the workers we had yesterday in the kitchen here when we had this more than music workshop. People just. Pretty much thanklessly just helping out with cooking sausages and helping people and just serving. Right from that, right, to, right through to perhaps a physical death. That's the cost. And what the cost is for me is what I need to work out with fear and trembling. Friends, we worship a paradoxical God. If you think about this for a moment, does God hold the whole world in his hand? Is he in complete control? Yes, he is. Or is the world somehow broken, distant from the perfect will of God? Yes, it is. Can I run to Jesus? Or run to God, the Father, I guess, is a better image for me. Like the prodigal son, have God run for me. We swept up in a brace and I call him Daddy, Papa. Yes, you can. Or do I need to enter his presence with fear and trembling? Yes, I do. Did Jesus conquer death completely, absolutely at the cross? Yes. Are we still suffering under death? Yes. These paradoxes go on and on and on. Is my future perfectly mapped out for me by a God who knows the future? Does he know exactly what's going to happen so there's a predestined path? Yes. Or do I have free will? I completely do have free will. Yes, I do. Paradox. Does it really have any bearing on my salvation, what I do, what I choose not to do? No. It's all about the blood of Jesus. And yes, it does. Paradox after paradox after paradox. Swim into the paradox. This thing of following Jesus is not collecting knowledge about God and how to live the life. It's about swimming into a mystery that cannot be solved. Will not be solved. And moment by moment, sacrificing and living. In closing, I want to tell you a story about some friends of mine from Auckland, New Zealand. This is Peter and Anne. And I sat down with Peter last January and he told me a story about how in 2007, he and Anne went to Africa to visit their 10 sponsor children through compassion. 10 kids. I'm inspired by that. I think the implication there is if, if you sponsor one child, that's fantastic. Great. If you sponsor two, if you sponsor three, great. I'm still going to ask you to, to consider sponsoring another. A fourth, a fifth, a sixth, a, a 78th. It's between you and God. My job is to present you with the opportunity. It's between you and God whether, whether you are needing to... Sponsor another, or should, as an expression of your worship. We have some photographs of when Peter and Anne went to a particular village in Tanzania. This was a a tiny little village, way off the beaten track. You couldn't actually drive there. They drove as far as they could, and then walked the rest of the way. And this is a community of people who are subsistence farmers, meaning that whatever they got to eat, they had to grow it first. Very simple life. No running water, no electricity, no glass in the windows, dirt on the floors. And uh, Peter and Anne were just overwhelmed by the welcome, the warmth. These, most of these people had never seen a white person. But they were welcomed openly and warmly with joy, with peace. And uh, fresh grass was cut for them to sit on. There were no seats And morsels of food were brought to them after their hands had been washed and their feet had been washed for them. And the kids got together and sang songs in their local culture, did dances. Beautiful kids. Kids that would play happily for a couple of hours with each other with a couple of pebbles while our kids and me get bored very quickly of multi-million dollar movies. Get bored of Nintendo and We and all the gadgets we have. The iPhone. And then Peter and Anne were welcomed into a home. A little tiny mud brick construction, two rooms, just a couple of metres square for each room. Something that I probably wouldn't consider worthy for my lawnmower. And Peter said to me, he thinks about 15 people lived there. And all those that lived there were old women, Middle-aged women, young women, or children. All the men had left or died, most of them from AIDS. Yet there wasn't this sense of mourning and desertion. And then Peter saw some writing on the wall. This writing is in the local language, but using our lettering. And it says, Tusha." And Peter was intrigued by that so intrigued that he asked what it meant and took this photograph for us. Because that first word looked like the name of Jesus. He's told what it meant. And it means this. Jesus is enough. Friends, I do not let Jesus be enough. I'm doing a far too good a job of looking after myself to let Jesus be enough. Making sure I have everything sorted out, all my ducks in a row, my nest egg, enough money for whatever, certainly enough for my next mortgage payment, my nice big house. Making sure my cars will never break down, making sure I've got enough minutes on my phone plan, making sure I know what movies are out right now and whether I've seen the ones I want to or not working out who I'm going to spend my time with and who I'm going to try and avoid. Doing a great job looking after myself. Why would I need to surrender more to Jesus and let him truly be enough? I've come this morning. I've got some help from some friends here and Simon, who's driven all the way from Canberra to be here. We've brought a bunch of these. It's just plastic and cardboard and ink. But in another sense, I'm holding in my hand a life. I'm holding in my hand the life of a little girl. I'm sorry. I can't look at these kids anymore. This is a little girl named Jessica. 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 She lives in Tanzania. This says she's nearly five, but she looks like she's about three. I'm sure she's got her best dress on and her best shoes for the photograph. And I'm realising that I've looked at Jessica the wrong way all my life. I've seen her as a poor person who needs my pity who needs my help and would be very lucky if she got it. It'd be a privilege for her if I took her under my wing. And I'm realizing that is the wrong way to look at Jessica. I believe that Jessica offers me an opportunity, not the other way around. I believe that Jessica offers me an opportunity to worship, to lay some of myself down for the sake of someone less fortunate than I am. And I want you to experience this with me. I'm not asking you, I'm not saying you. this is you saying I will sponsor a child. But I want to hand you one of these forms. One of these lives. I want you to hold it in your hand. And look at it. And so we've got our volunteers right here who are going to do that. We may not have enough one per person. But at least one per married couple. At least one per family group. Let's do this as quickly as we can. Would you help Hand these out. This is not you, as I said, saying I will sponsor a child. I want you to have an opportunity to worship by praying for this child, by extending yourself in compassion for this child who's across the other side of the world. We have a couple of people in the kids' room too who would need one or two. A couple of people at the sound desk. The tech team up there. Would you raise your hand if you don't have one to look at yet? I'd love you to look at that photograph as I explained to you about what Matthew 25 to verse 31 to 46 says. And this is the last extended piece of teaching that Jesus is recorded as giving his followers before he is betrayed and crucified. I believe this is like the exclamation point on Jesus' time on earth. And Jesus is talking about something we don't speak about in church all that often. It's judgment. Judgment day. And Jesus explains how God one day is going to separate all people into one of two groups, like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And you know, whenever I've heard this story, as I'm sure you have as well, I've immediately assumed that I'm a sheep. Haven't given, given it much thought. Of course I'm a sheep. I'm a Christian. I go to church. I tithe. I'm a good person. And I think about all the things that would make me a sheep. But You know what, actually, I probably wouldn't even think about it. I would just assume. But Jesus doesn't, doesn't describe any of those things that I've listed as being what makes me a sheep. Jesus in Matthew 25 between verses 31 and 46 only describes one outward criteria that God is looking for to decide who is a sheep and who is a goat. Only one. Do we know what it is? We call ourselves his followers. We call ourselves worshippers. Do we know what it is? Would you have known it yesterday if you'd been asked in casual conversation? Well, Jesus describes this. That what God is looking for to decide who is a sheep and who is a goat is how I treat the least of these. The hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the sick, the lonely, the imprisoned. Imprisoned behind a jail cell perhaps, but also I think imprisoned by geography, gender, age, location, situation, luck bad luck, whatever that is. In short, I think what what Jesus is describing here is whether I'm a sheep or a goat depends on how I treat treat Jessica. Jessica and the many other least of these that I, I know about. And Jesus goes even further. He says to us, the way I treat the least of these is the way I treat God. And this is why I say to you right now, in your hands you hold an opportunity to worship. This is my opportunity to express myself to God. Now, please don't misunderstand this. The cross is a free gift. My salvation is a free gift. It is a free gift. The paradox being that it costs everything. I don't believe I'm saying, sponsor this child, so you're a sheep. I'm not saying that. And if you are hearing a voice right now that is condemning, thick, heavy, the voice that would make you feel guilty, that's not the voice of God. My prayer is that that is not coming from me. If you are hearing a voice like that, in Jesus' name, pray against it. But you can hear a voice that's convicting that is from God. And we need to be able to tell the difference between a voice that condemns and a voice that convicts. In a moment, as the band comes up to play our last song, I'm going to ask you to begin praying. Pray for the child that you hold in front of you. If you're in a couple or a family group, I'd love you to pray together for this child. Pray for their family, for their community, for their country. Pray for their future. Pray as you feel led. But do it as an expression of worship, an expression of worship I believe that is asked for by Jesus much more than singing songs a much more valid expression of worship than any number of songs we've ever sung about his love this is an opportunity to be his love through prayer and as we begin to pray play i'd ask you to add to your prayer god would you have me sponsor this child as an expression of worship Would you have me sponsor this child as an expression of worship? I'd love you to try and use those words. I believe words are powerful. Please don't wonder to yourself what God would tell you if you really asked him or if he really gave you an answer. Don't WWJD question mark this. Don't what would Jesus do if he were here. Ask and listen for an answer. And I believe you'll hear one of three answers. The answer I hope you hear, number one, is yes. I would like you to sponsor this child as an expression of your worship this morning. And if that is the case, then I ask you to visit Simon or me, some of the other helpers, as you leave with this form. And there's some very simple paperwork to to fill out to make that happen. The second answer you might hear could be no. This is not how you should express your worship this morning. In which case, I need you to just bring this form back and drop it on the table. I'm going to try and go out for the rest of this uh, trip to Australia and get the rest of these kids sponsored. Please don't take that opportunity away from me by keeping the packet, keeping the form. Just drop it on the table. And as you leave, I I encourage you to find other ways to express your worship that cost. And I've no doubt that your pastoral team, I think we've even heard about some of them today, are begging for some more people to give their time or their energy, their resources, their, their talents to something right? Jonathan's nodding enthusiastically. Yes, there is much need. Jonathan knows ways that you can express your worship that are going to cost you, and he wants to plug you in with them, right? But see them as an expression of what God has done for me. The third answer you might hear might be, find out some more information. And I say that because many people might want to ask some questions at the table or speak to some people around them to see if they can find a team of people three or four or five people to spread the cost of this or you might even want to make a couple of mobile phone calls to people who aren't here right now and see if you can do this as a group and I'll let me just say mums and dads I don't believe there's a better way than something like this to start teaching our kids about what it is to accept this living sacrifice challenge the paradox of the cross. And I heard in New Zealand recently about a family that gets together for an evening meal once a month. And instead of eating what they would normally eat, they have breakfast cereal. And they put the, the forms of all the kids they sponsor in the middle of the table. And they explain to their kids that we're having breakfast cereal tonight so that we can afford to sponsor these kids. And they talk about them and they pray for them. And after dinner, they write letters to them. And they read letters that have come from them. And it's a beautiful thing. So please, as we close, begin to pray for this child. And in a moment, I'll ask you to stand and sing with us the last couple of choruses of Be Thou My Vision. Thank you.